Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Tessa, and today on our panel we have Chris Fritz. Hello, Ari Clark. Hello, Ben Hong. Hello, hello. And our special guest for this episode is Michael Tyson. Michael, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I am a developer at Vidyard, and I write a lot about View on my blog and create courses and videos more lately. And yeah, just like talking about View. Cool. Yeah, I feel like you have a very popular blog, or maybe it's just very popular in my heart, but I enjoy reading the updates every week. <laughs> <laughs> Talk a bit more about I'm glad that. to hear that. Yeah, so I have a blog. I've been writing it for almost two years now, just trying to take some of the things that I've been learning about view and putting it out there, sharing it with other people. And so far it's been really interesting to to learn how to how to do that and how to communicate and yeah, always figuring out new stuff. And how did you get started with view? What made you get into view and then start a blog about it? Like what what was the motivation? Well I was originally working with React at a previous job and Ended up taking uh, a new job where the framework of choice was Vue. And I'd heard about Vue before then, but never really taken a hard look at it. But the primary reason that I switched jobs was that I was interested in helping out with building this component library. So at Vidyard, we've been working on this component library and I've been focused on that. And so that was, yeah, that was really interesting to me. And so I mean, along with that, I started to pick up Vue. And at first I hated it because it was different. and <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. But eventually I started to figure some stuff out. And then I decided to write the blog because I wanted to create something and create something for others, you know, beyond myself, I guess. And I started with this Medium blog post and it got a lot of attention. And so that was, was quite, I guess, motivating, sort of like a verification that this might be something worthwhile. Do you remember what that first Medium post was about? I can't remember. I think it was like a collection of different patterns. I could probably find it though if I went to look. The only post I've actually written on Medium, I think, so it should be easy to find. Mm -hmm. I think I found it. Is it checklist for writing highly reusable components in React and Vue? Yes. That's like 798 claps. Yeah. Awesome. Yes, I'll drop it. We'll be sure to drop this in the uh, links for the show. Perfect. Speaking of reusable components, that area of Vue seems to be what you're into nowadays. Is that right? Could you talk more about that? Yes. So... The primary thing that I've been focused on at Vidyard has been figuring out how to build this component library. And so a component library to me is like the purest form of a reusable component or set of reusable components, I guess, because creating a button that's going to be used hundreds and hundreds of times, I mean, that's like the most reusable kind of component in a way, but even more complex things like a date picker or something like that need to be reused. And so this idea of 
patterns that allow us to reuse components and create nice abstractions in view is something that I think about a lot. And so I think it's something that I spend a lot of time mulling over. And so then I have been wanting to get those ideas out and also see what other people think if, if my ideas are, you know, make any sense or if they're just completely crazy. Yeah, it can, it can be a good way to sort of ask questions <laughs> indirectly because when you provide answers, the internet has a, has a great way of saying uh, like, oh no, I think I would never do this or you know, I, I would do this or why don't you do X? Uh, and you're like, I've never heard of X. So maybe I'll look good. <laughs> yeah, which is great and also terrifying at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's very vulnerable. So what have you found to be like some of the biggest pain points that people run into when creating reusable components? Like what have people responded most to and said like, oh my gosh, thank you for helping me solve this problem? Oh, that's a tough question. It doesn't have to be the very most, but just <laughs> some of the things like on, on the top of your head that, like, that stand out to you as especially useful to people or, or most popular, most popular posts, that kind of thing. I would have to say the, the idea of slots as, as a concept. And I know you brought this up in your previous episode on reusable components, and, but I think it's because it's one of those concepts that's so important. But it's also really tricky to wrap your head around, especially scope slots. And once you start doing more complicated things with it, and I've started to nest slots within slots and like do all sorts of really weird, fun things that so far have seemed to work out well. And so... Do you have an example use case of that? That that seemed kind of weird, but you really like it? Yeah, so we have in our product we have like this this top bar that's sort of like like a toolbar almost at the at the top of the page. And I have basically s- several levels of that component where each each level sort of adds more specific functionality to it. So the very basic level just has three different slots for the left, the center and the right side of of this top bar and then the next component takes that and then so if you're on a specific page like like your library page it'll add in a title on the left side and then all of the pages within that area will use that component and sort of like further add more functionality it's really difficult to explain in words, I feel like, but, but basically it's like... Words are mostly what we use in the podcast. Yes, yes. <laughs> if I could show you a diagram, it'd be wonderful. <laughs> but it's similar to if you've ever looked at object-oriented programming where you have, like, you have your animal class and then you subclass that to a mammal, which adds a little bit more specific functionality. And then you subclass that to a dog where you add a bark method or you know something like that it's it's a similar idea and then if you want to add another mammal you can you reuse the mammal component and you can sort of branch off and then you end up with like this tree of components that kind of all inherit functionality from each other so to to have like a a group of stuff that has a title you might have like a a toolbar titleable component or something like that like something that 
can have a, a, a title and uh, maybe has some other properties associated with things that have titles. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So how do you know when you would reach for something like this inheritable slot in slot solution? Like I said, in your recent newsletters, you're talking, you've been talking about this idea of something like five levels of reusability. Is that like a tool that developers can use to think about how they would want to architect their reusable components? Yeah. So I've sort of formulated six different levels and they're, I don't like to create like tons of new concepts and names for things, but I find it helps to name things and like to, to like separate things out into distinct groups. And the different levels are more so about increasing levels of sophistication, I guess. So like the first, just reusing code in a component. And so that's what we all do when we create new components is this level one type of reusability. But yeah, I think it's it's helpful to think about that in terms of these and yeah. So what was the process like to identify these architecture patterns? Like how did you come up with that list? I don't know. I think I just thought about the different ways that I've created components before and thought about how to group them into different levels of sophistication or complexity. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that there are people who will disagree with <laughs> my system, but I mean, it, that's, it works for me at least. Yeah. I mean, reading some of your blog posts, I know you sort of, what I found interesting, you separate the idea of a clean component versus a reusable component. Whereas like, I think some people, it's easy to sort of like blend the two together. You know, so I'd be curious, you know, for listeners, like what does that mean to you to have a component that's clean versus one that's reasonable? Yeah. So I think the idea of either a clean component or a reusable component can certainly be applied to like almost anything, any blog post you read or best practice or whatever, you could probably lump under either category and no one would complain too much. But to me, a reusable component is a component that lets you do more with less code. So instead of having to constantly reinvent the wheel or constantly have to write more and more code for a new feature that you're building, you can take those requirements for this new feature and, and, and say, oh, look, we actually have this component. I just need to like hook these things up or make a couple little tweaks to this existing component. And this feature is like 80% done already. Like there are some things that probably all date pickers have in common. Yeah, exactly. Or like a button. You don't have to rewrite that button code every time because, I mean, how different can buttons really get? Hopefully not that different or else it might be a confusing experience for users. (laughs) Yes, that's true. After about like six or seven different types of buttons, I'm like trying to push back on how many more do we actually need here? (laughs) But a clean component, on the other hand, is it's it does make it easier to write that next feature, but in a way that is more about making it easier to think about the components. And when you open that file, you don't immediately close it and shut your laptop and go outside. <laughs> and so that's kind of like the difference to me. It is, it's a bit of a fuzzy line, but that's how I would think about it. 
I mean, I guess I sort of think about it like not every component you write should be reusable. You know, sometimes you're writing a very feature specific component, but making it clean is definitely in your best interest. Yeah, I feel like some of the scariest component files I've looked at are ones where it's clear that the developer went in with an intent of this will be reusable or else. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then just layers on layers of abstractions because they didn't think about that one thing at first. And then later down the road, oh, how do I shove this in there too? Those are fun. I've never done that. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) But they're so much fun to write. That's like. They are. The best. My favorite days are when I write those components. Not when I have to go back to them, but when I write them. (laughs) No, I. Yeah. True. True, true. Must be in the minority, then I hate one size fits all components. Yeah, they can get really messy. They're fun at the time because like they really, it's a good brain exercise to try and think of everything. (laughs) <laughs> you always miss something. Yeah. It's, it's fitting like, a complex puzzle. It's like I see the appeal theoretically, but it always reminds me of like choose your own adventure stories or like mystery stories or something where it's like you're trying to come up with all the branching paths, but then I have to hold all those paths in my head temporarily. And that like taking up that memory space in my head is what makes me irritated. So that's why. <laughs> <laughs> and we were joking earlier about like, you know, how, how different can buttons really be? But like I've written components and, and seen components for buttons that were just super, super complex and long, you know, because you end up with like, oh, we have some buttons that like search and then you click on them and they should show like a little status symbol. And then, you know, it'll like go to submitted or sometimes it'll just like go back to its original text like search. Sometimes you might have like buttons that are like really big or are like, don't, don't actually look like buttons or look like a different kind of button. <laughs> There's just uh, so many different, so many different variations of buttons that you could have. And if you try to encapsulate like everything about buttons all in one component, that can get really, really complex instead of like having some other component that, you know, can go into a slot of a button, for example, to add that status indicator or something like that. I have a button component that is 532 lines long. <laughs> Mm. So yes, (laughs) you can make them real, real big. I feel like a custom search button is like the most complicated button in maybe component that I've ever worked on. Uh, So going back to how you come up with ideas, I remember, um, because you're talking about this slot and slot thing. And also at View Toronto, you gave a talk, I think on like how to do everything you need to do in View, basically only in the template part of an SFC. So I'm curious how you come up with these. Like, where did your inspiration come from for these ideas? I have no idea. I just, I like experimenting and playing with things and just trying weird things to see what happens. And so that that talk basically came out of, I was like, well, there's this idea of renderless components. So this was like a year, almost two years ago, that I was starting to play around with this stuff. and. So there's no talk of composition API or anything like that. And so I was like, well, that seems interesting. Like we're, you know, doing this funky stuff in the template. What if you did everything in the template? Like how far can you push this? Like, can you define variables within the template that are like only scope to the template? And you can kind of, and it's weird, but it works. And you can like, (laughs) 
yeah, do all sorts of weird, terrible things. Yeah, it sounds like for some of this stuff, you think like, yeah, technically you can, but I don't recommend it. It was more of a thought yes. experiment. <laughs> yes, it was a thought experiment. And then it's like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, in a lot of ways, science and exploration like that is sort of like, oh, what, what can we do? And then out of that, maybe 5% or 10% you can actually use for something useful. And so who knows? Now, I'm, I'm kind of curious, what patterns have you used in the past that you most regret? Like, what have you changed your mind on over time? as you've been writing components. And it doesn't have to be like just, just with Vue. A lot, a lot of patterns make sense with, in both Vue and React. I, I, I know I have, I have some regrets. I haven't written perfect components every time, actually. What? That's yes. true. The podcast is canceled. <laughs> am, I, am I kicked off? Yeah. Sorry, bye, Chris. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just kidding. You can stay. I mean, I am perfect. I was just being humble. <laughs> okay, yeah. You can totally stay now. That's how perfect he is. But what about, what about you, Michael? Yeah, so the one, I think like my biggest regret, the one that sticks out the most is not necessarily about components, but when I was developing with React, I, I was also using Redux, which is somewhat similar to how Vuex works. And Redux has this idea of middleware where you can sort of listen to these Think these actions that you're dispatching, and as they go past, you can do different things with them. And I basically stuck most of the logic for the application into this middleware part. Wow. <laughs> Thinking, oh, this is great. It's fully, it's like abstracted out of the components. It's not part of the state. And like the state updates, like this is going to be so good. And it was so terrible. <laughs> and I'm so sorry to whoever has to deal with that now or like deleted it. I'm sure they have by now, but you hope. I hope. <laughs> That's how you sleep at night. <laughs> yes. That's one of the problems with experimenting with things on like production code is that you have to live with that or someone has to live with that for a long time. Uh-huh. <laughs> Lump is <Yep>. not you. <laughs> so don't do that. For listeners like me who haven't had as much opportunity to work with middleware. Can you expand a bit more on like why that was such a headache for you after you implemented it? Because theoretically, when you were putting it together, it, it felt great, right? Yeah, it. I think it was just everything ended up all in the same spot. And so it's having logic in your components is actually nice in some ways because it's separated out into small little pieces. And you only have to think about that small chunk. And this middleware thing was essentially like putting all of the logic into one giant file. And then you're just scrolling most of your day. And that's no, <laughs> no way to live. So it's kind of like in, in Vuex, where if you, instead of creating like a bunch of different modules, you created like a Vuex plugin that kind of managed all, all of your state. <laughs> And, yeah. and did a bunch of things like in combination with maybe like a, a a central like store that like has a bunch of stuff rather than having a separate module. Yep. Yeah, exactly like that. Now, what about like going back to components? What is the component that you've been responsible for? Just so we don't throw anybody else under the bus in case you have some some coworkers listening. But what is the component that you've been responsible for that you've regretted the most? <laughs> 
So I actually wrote a blog post about this and it's, the title is The Paradox of Abstraction because when you abstract things and make these highly reusable components, you save on a lot of effort because when you add a feature into the component once, it's everywhere. But if you make a mistake and introduce a bug, that bug is also everywhere. And so it was with a menu component that I built for this component library. And we use a lot of menus and a lot of dropdowns and like combo boxes or list boxes, that kind of thing. And I was building those components at the same time when I realized that, oh, they're all basically the same thing. You click a button and then this little pop-up window comes up and it's got a list of options in it. Why don't I make that into like this abstracted component? And so it was beautiful. And it was like one of the, like one of those, pr- the proudest moments of my life where I was just like, oh yeah. It always starts I, out like that. I figured out the secret, <laughs> the secret of the universe. I have the perfect abstraction to rule them all. I know how to cover every use case in this one component. I'll never have to rewrite code again. Funny enough, my worst component was a menu component as well for, for similar reasons. I was building like a, a drop down like a top nav bar and somebody advised that I should, I should leverage the presentational versus stateful component pattern. So I went in deliberately <laughs> applying this pattern and at first everything seemed like Chris said, so clean and separated. And then I realized that the more I worked on it, the more impossible it was to work on because I had uh, tried to force this pattern onto it that wasn't, it was like abstraction for abstraction's sake. It wasn't really functional. It just felt nice. So I never went back to again. And, and now I'm in a code base where we do deliberately do that quite often. And it's like that Adele song where she's like, hello, darkness, my old friend. And I'm like, ah. I think that's originally Pauline Garfunkel, isn't it? Probably. You're right. Simon and Garfunkel. Or, sorry, yeah, Simon and Garfunkel. Thank you. I mean, tactic, technically he was like half right because it is Paul. Yeah, yeah. But at that point, just go with, you know, Paul and Art. <laughs> We'll just we'll just fix that in post so that I was never wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're perfect. Forgot. Uh-huh. Got to maintain that image or else I'll be kicked <laughs> off the podcast. <laughs> well, so to ask the flip side of Chris's question, do you have a component then that you're proud of that you didn't end up regretting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah sure. I think that's the key. Growth mindset. <laughs> yeah, I wrote this component today and I don't think I'm going to have any problems with it. I think that's always how it turns out. It's, it's always beautiful in the beginning and then it turns out that you just kept making the same mistake. I don't know. That's a really tough question. I don't know. Maybe I'll just... Replay the the first half of that story about the menu component. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you were proudest. <laughs> That's great. I like it. <laughs> I'm curious. I wonder if if the rest of you have this experience where when you're first developing the component, you're like, "This is going to be so clean and well organized and nice," and then you hit like a real big low where you're like, "This is terrible. I don't understand anything I wrote. This is the most disgusting component I've ever seen in my life." And then as you finish and you look back and you're like, "Oh, it's not as bad as I thought." So the Dunning-Kruger component? <laughs> yeah. I feel like with Dunning-Kruger, you never really get back up again, right? You just keep on going down, down, down. Well, you get like to the back up to like middle. Never never as high, but I mean, you know. maybe Maybe that's the Stockholm Syndrome component. 
uh, where the more you work with it, the more you like it, the more you're stuck with it. Michael, I demand to see a blog post on this. <laughs> the Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> whoa, whoa, Ben, you're the one with the psych background. But I mean, when we when we get into components, as like we've all gotten into, like components that we just don't like anymore, and we find that we've kind of coded ourselves into a corner, and it's really hard to work on this now. So let's let's think mm. specifically to yeah. that component that that you were talking about before, where you know you, you abstracted it and it felt really good at first, and now you really regret it. If you had to go back in time. Like let's say you're you're given another chance and like an angel like visits you in or or like uh, I don't know a ghost if if you're like a Scrooge or something like that. Ghost oh, I can take you back, <laughs> and you can fix the mistake. Is that how Christmas Carol goes? I, I don't remember. And you have a chance to to make things better before someone else is stuck with it. How would you how would you try to make it better? How would you try to figure out even how to make it better? Yeah, I think. I would first look at how the component is actually being used and separate that from how I think it should be used or mm. how I want it to be used. So kind of like listing out all the use cases and like where you're running into problems. Yeah. And and seeing like, oh, I thought that this date picker would would be used, people would be disabling certain dates so you couldn't select them. But turns out people just don't use that feature. So why is this in there? Why am I trying to cover this use case that no one actually cares about? I think it's really easy to, when you're in that that beginning stage of thinking about, okay, what am I going to do with this component? It's got all of these things it's going to do. You get like this, you know, gold plating syndrome, I think is a term where you just like, go nuts with your imagination and thinking about all these amazing things it could be. Like, what if we need this? Yeah. I feel like we need that YouTube like, mm. oh, sound effect here. And so for those wondering, I just learned based on Michael's mention of the gold plating effect for those who've never heard of it because I, I had it before. So it's apparently the phenomenon of working on a project or task past the point of diminishing returns. <gasps> and oh, I, I, I've definitely done that on more than one occasion. <laughs> Technically, with a Christmas Carol, what would happen is the ghost would show Michael like the lives of all of the developers who use his components, and, <laughs> and then it would show them in their lives after he's moved on, and they still have to live with the the consequences of his components, so that he feels. I think he already feels bad about it. I don't. I don't know. That, that seems like rubbing it in his face. <laughs> I think it's mostly been me that's been dealing with it. Maybe that's why I haven't been able to get others to help me out with it. So. so you were talking about documenting like actual use cases. And that's something I've been curious about when it comes to this idea of creating a component library, because two approaches that I've seen when it comes to this are either to build, build generic component library that like any, any app could reuse or building one once you have your app designs so you know how each component is being reused specifically for your app. And then I've also seen commentary where people are like, you shouldn't adapt other component libraries. You should build your own thing from scratch. So like if I'm a developer coming into a project and thinking I want to build a library, like between those approaches, how do I decide what works for me or how do I find a balance there? Yeah, I think there 
because it's really easy to over abstract things and to gold plate, I think seeing what components and what use cases you have in your application and then sort of pulling that out and saying, oh, look, we use this confirmation dialogue where it says, are you sure you want to do this? And then you hit yes or no. We use that like seven times. Why don't we just make this a reusable component? And then you know for sure that that's something that you're actually going to use multiple times. And you can also see the different variations in how you're using it. So I think that's something that we've learned at Vidyard is really important is actually seeing what you need. And then there's also like a logistical side of things where it's hard to get your manager to give you or the company as a whole to give you like this huge chunk of time to like go off and develop this amazing, beautiful component library. But if you just like sneak it into like your normal feature development, it, you know, after a couple of weeks or a couple of months, you can start to have something there. So how do you sneak it in? How does, how does, how does that work? Well, it, when you're going to add the eighth confirmation dialogue and you're tired of copy and pasting this thing all over the place, <laughs> then you just take a little bit of extra time to pull all this stuff in to your reusable component and yeah, just take a little bit of extra time to clean it up, make it a little bit more reusable. And that feature might take a little bit longer, but I mean, I'm pretty much always over on when I say I'm going to complete things anyways. So what's the difference? At least, at least you can be over your estimate in a way that makes the code base like better overall <laughs> and reduces technical yeah. debt. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like there's always some kind of growing pain period where you have like no reusable components and then you identify the reusable components and then you build them and or you have like the magical reusable component, realize that doesn't work and then build the actual reusable components that you need. Yeah, I think it's, it's something like, like that. There's that awkward stage between where you have nothing and where you have something. And like, if you have half a component library, you can't really do anything with that if you only have like a button and an input. But it's tough to get through that stage. And sometimes it makes sense to have like six different kinds of buttons before you decide like what are the things that you you really want to combine, you know, and, and getting a little bit more experience with those use cases before you jump into an abstraction and try to turn it all into like one button that rules them all. That that really is like six different use cases or or maybe even just three different use cases, but is still super complex and doesn't feel like it goes together. Yeah, it sounds like you could all use a little bit more essentialism when it comes to app design. And it makes me think of like those old video games where there was like 15 games in one, 26 games in one, 300 games in one. But like the one that sticks with you is Kirby's Dreamland 2. Or like just, you know. It's very specific. <laughs> one game, try to do it all. Yeah, we actually built a tool that lets us see how many times each component is being used in our code base. It's not 100% accurate. It basically just like tries to do a text match on the component name. But it's really interesting to see that like the button component is used twice as much as the second most popular component, which is 
the input component, which is used twice as much as the next one, which is used twice as much as the next one. And then there's like, you know, the button is used 500 times and then the date picker is used like three times. And so it's really interesting to see how that plays out and to think about the implications of that and how it's all skewed like that. Do you ever have contests at your company? Like who can build the most popular reusable component? That would be a great contest. I feel like someone might try to skew it though by just using that component way more than it needs to be used. Or or you could have like a a paragraph text component and then just like replace all the paragraphs uh, (laughs) with this paragraph Mm -hmm. text component Or, or just like plain text component where it just like renders this stuff as like, you know, text content. You know, so it's, it's, it's not actually doing anything, but you can use it everywhere and you can just wrap it around every individual word and it can become your most popular component. Or the character component. Yeah, this could, this could open up a, a, real, <laughs> a real can of worms. Here's ViewConf talk topic, go. And then you open up your view dev tools and you just can't, can't see what's going on. And there's, you know, going back a little bit to like refactoring components, there was one tip that I wanted to give that I find really, really, really useful. Is that like a lot of times when I'm refactoring a component, I'm tempted to kind of just throw out the old component and then just like build new components. And sometimes like it's used all over the place. And so sometimes it makes sense to have the the new components just used in like, you know, one place to, to test it out, like in the place where you're maybe having the problem that prompted you to do a rewrite and then start doing more and more replacements and and make a rule that you can't work you can't do any future work on the old component and you can even like rename it to something like you know whatever its name was and then underscore deprecated <laughs> and 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 even in all caps make it really really ugly so that people know to never use it again in the future if they're if they have this use case they should use these other components and you can even put like a little uh, note inside that component to use these other components you know, so that you don't have to yeah, convert your entire app all at once. And something else that is, is really, really helpful for just figuring out like what are the different use cases that exist inside here, like for a search page component. Like let's say that there can be a lot of things involved in searching, like the actual like fetching information, and then you might want to sort it and you might want to like display it in a table and stuff like that. And there can be a lot of different components in here. Inside the actual component that is too complex, I'll start pulling things out line by line into mixins that exist within the same file. It's just like right above like the export default. I'll start defining mixins and then adding those. And eventually I'll have an empty component that is just like export default, these mixins for these different features that I'm using in this component. And so I'm not actually creating reusable mixins. I'm just using mixins as a way of organizing the different kinds of features so that I can get a sense for like what is happening here and help to organize it a little bit better. And sometimes just doing that can make things at least easier to work on before you do a big refactor if you don't have time for that so that you're not scrolling all over the place just to figure out like where is the sorting logic like it's spread out throughout this like 2000 line component you know and across like five different blocks of code and that can also help you like figure out what what you want to move into into separate components later 
but it's like sort of a middle step where like you're not actually changing any functionality. You're just moving lines around in the file and in a way that, that helps you make sense of what is going on, what are the different things that you're trying to do that could be separated. So is the mix-in step like a temporary thing? Yeah, it's typically a temporary thing. There have been places where temporary seems to last a really long time because you just it never becomes a big enough priority to, to make that other step. But at the very least, it helps you organize your component in a way that's, that's much easier to, to see instead of having... Yeah, like especially with the object syntax and in view that, that is exclusively available in, in, in view two and will be one of the options in view three. You know, you have all your methods in one place, all your computer in another place, all your data in another place. And it, you'll have like pieces of each feature, like across all of those. And so each feature is by nature automatically like already spread around and really hard to, to figure out like where things fit together. Whereas like in the, the setup function, you know, using the composition API in view three, you can actually organize that code however you'd like. Do you have examples of the mix and approach that listeners can reference online? I think there's a, a blog post that I, that, that I wrote for view that I, that I never got published. So no, but <laughs> I can, I can share like a, a simple example and a gist. I can drop that in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah, I think I'm dealing with the first situation you described in my current ticket. So I definitely should think about going in there and adding a, a deprecated note or changing the name to be deprecated or something. But that reminds me like something for some reason like that I'm having this existential crisis on recently is with, with event handler names, right? Like if you have a button that to the user, it looks like it saves but really you're just emitting data from the button to some parent component, like it's a modal or something. So you want to save and close. What would you name the handler that handles what happens when the user clicks on on the button, if that makes sense? So I have a save button and a modal. When the user clicks it, I want the modal to emit the modal data to the parent and then the parent handles closing the modal. Like, would I call it save or would I call it something else? Because technically it's not doing the saving. It's just emitting data upwards. So is it just like handling the closing? I guess in this specific case, the parent is handling the closing. I'm not sure how common a use case that is across all view apps, but really the, the child doesn't do anything except send the data up because it's not in control of whether it displays or not. The parent controls that. Got I use it. lots of names like yeah. confirm and cancel for modals, which are, I guess, a little vague, but maybe that works. Yeah. If I, I've, I've had like confirmable components that like wrap buttons that like you want to have a confirmed dialog pop up with. And that way you're like, you're moving the logic from the parent. If, if that's, if I'm understanding your, your use case correctly, like into this reusable component. Yeah. I'm not sure that's an option right now since the modal is used, like that modal logic is used everywhere in the app. But at least for my use case for the cancel, I've just been like, okay, that will be cancel updates because then I'm not sending any updated data anyway. So that makes sense. But then for the save button, I've been vacillating between like emit updated data and like save the data because technically it will eventually be saved. But then I'm like, well, that's not quite accurate because in this component, it's not saved. So I was just curious how other people... I think think emit updated data is good because that's really what it's doing. What What happens after that isn't really the concern of that component, it sounds like. So... Well, I feel like there might be another solution here, but I might have to like look at the code. Yeah, because I don't know if 
the other thing I'm worried about, pre-worried about. Is- <laughs> pre-worried. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Having like all the data everywhere. Is that just like another on change where it's like, okay, yeah, that's obvious, but I'm not really adding any new information to the story or any new context to the story. Just yeah. like flipping. Sometimes my event handlers are poorly named and I will admit that. Because, you know, it was kind of goes towards the whole reusable thing. You know, when I first, you know, started developing a component, it was just, you know, for this one thing. And so I named it this one thing. But then it started getting used for some other things. And then that first name didn't make as much sense. But I was like, but I don't feel like changing it. And eventually it just gets refactored entirely. As long as you know what it means. (laughs) You could go with names like A, B, C. Solid choices. And then you never have to change it. I've actually worked on a code base where there were components literally named part of the alphabet. (laughs) I think it was like layout A, layout B, layout C, layout D. It was a nightmare. (laughs) So you joke, but people have done it. (laughs) Yeah, for, for one project I wrote, like in a special ESLint rule that would identify any, I think it was any variables that are less than three characters and like emit an error. This was not allowed. That's, uh, that's brutal. And I, I felt that was generous. <laughs> Allowing a three character variable, but sometimes like, sometimes that's okay. I did some iOS development a long time ago. And one thing I noted or that I noticed was that all of like the method names and variable names are like several words long and incredibly descriptive. But with autocomplete, it doesn't really matter that much. And so it was actually kind of nice that it was just like button that opens modal and then will save it to disk or something like that. I seriously do not. Yeah, I seriously do not mind names that are in entire sentence. That's great. I've yeah, never I'm, rejected I'm a, a pull fan. request because of that. I'm a big fan of super long um, method and variable names because, you know, future me really appreciates it. Because, <laughs> you know, current me really hates commenting. So. <laughs> uh, so before we close, Michael, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question that we've talked about in this podcast before, which was, I think, at the beginning of the year, you you wrote a blog post about provide and inject and how it's different from dependency injection. And then you close the post with like, when will we actually, how do we actually use provide and inject? Or what is it meant for if it's not dependency injection? You'll have to wait till that blog post. And to my knowledge, that blog post still hasn't come out yet. So I'm sure <laughs> I'm expect to see it because I don't know how to use provide and inject. And every time I'm, I'm looking it up again, I'm reminded, oh yeah, when is that coming out? And don't laugh too hard because I want to know when Vue 3 is coming out too. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time this episode goes out, the Vue 3 docs will be published, at least a beta version. So. I need to stop doing that in blog posts because I think a year and a half ago, I wrote like, rebuilding my blog in, with Gritsum part one. And then I just haven't. So I don't know if I have the answer to that. But I think the, the distinction I was trying to make in that blog post at least, was that dependency injection is, I mean, I guess you can interpret it in lots of different ways. And maybe I'm going to contradict myself with with what I wrote in that blog post. (laughs) But dependency injection, as I understand it, is about like not deciding 
or, or leaving it up to something else to decide what the code will look like. So like slots are dependency injection. You don't know what that code is going to look like. So you're going to leave it up to another component to do that. And so dependency, dependency injection to me is similar to that where you don't know how you're going to fetch data. And so you say, I'm going to call this fetch method on this object, but you have to give me this object. And that's dependency injection. And I guess you can use provide and inject for that. But the way that I've seen people using provide and inject for the most part is for things like configuration and other things like that, where it's not, I guess it's similar, but it's not the same. And sometimes dependency injection is very like implicit. You know, this sometimes nothing in the file that tells you like these other objects or methods are available. Whereas I can with provide inject, you have to, you have to actually inject for anything to be provided explicitly. And so on, on both sides, Mm -hmm. on the provider side and on the injected side, you know, you're saying exactly what you want to provide and exactly what you want to inject. Although you're not saying where you want to inject it from. So that, that part is still a little bit implicit that there's no like, breadcrumb telling you exactly which grandparent uh, or great-grandparent, some ancestor component uh, that it's coming from, which usually doesn't cause a problem. Although if someone theoretically had, was providing like the same kind of data in a bunch of different components, then <laughs> you could get into a confusing situation. But I, I don't think I've ever actually seen that. Maybe I'll write a follow-up post where I just completely contradict myself. Gotta keep people guessing. <laughs> Change my mind. Flop, you know, and you can call it how I rewrote my blog and grid some part two. Okay, and with that, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Michael Thiessen and on my blog, michaelntiessen.com. Cool. So let's move on to this week's picks. Chris, would you like to go first? No. Okay, Ari, would you like to go first? That's not fair. <laughs> but okay, okay, I'll go. That's okay. been an option the whole time, Ari. You just never, you just never chose that option. That's because I'm not a jerk. <laughs> I'm not going to forget this, Chris. Okay. <laughs> I didn't say no. Give it to Ari. Listen, Tessa is the one who passed it on to you, and she's the one with all the power. She's the one who said, like, well, if Chris says no, then we'll just have someone else do it instead of making me do it. Okay, but you're the one who defied the established social norm here. So, <laughs> um, fine. I will go first. I will go first. Well, no. Now, now I want to go first. Get away from you. He's okay to Gosh, go first. Okay, yeah. fine. You can go first. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, I wanted. Uh, I really wanted to do my picks, but Ari just jumped in and interrupted me. <laughs> go ahead. No, fine. Do, do do whatever. I don't even. I don't even want any picks this week. Go ahead. I promise picks don't usually go this way, Michael. <laughs> that is true. This is an anomaly. Uh, okay. I have one pick, and it is uh, Flores Lava on Netflix. It is a fun show that is family friendly, and you should just watch it because it's funny, but also heartwarming, and also shows you how working together is your best bet to survive. So that's my pick. 
I can second that, by the way. I love that show. Right? So much fun. Oh, and sometimes they just eat it and you're just like, oh, I know. <laughs> oh that's And they hurt. give you plenty of replays so you can really savor the In moment. Slow motion. <laughs> yeah, people at work have been getting really into that show as well. All right, Ben, do you have any picks for us this week? Yeah, so I have two. So one... Uh, for those who don't know, Michael actually does have a course called Clean Components. I believe you have another one coming up. So I'd love to have you speak on that. But if you're looking for sort of more of his you know, advice on how to take your components and make them clean and just really grasp those fundamentals, definitely recommend checking out his Clean Components course. And my second one is a productivity nerd, the medium blog post on the Zettelkasten, which is, I believe it's either Dutch or German, which basically just means notebox. And German. it's basically... German, okay. And it's about this one German scholar who was incredibly productive. Um, he published over like 400, I think it was 400 scholarly articles and like wrote like 70 books, something crazy. And he did this prior to the computer days and just talks about his productivity system for how he made this happen with just index, index cards and boxes. And I may have r- ranted a little bit to Chris about this, but like it's just like... Yeah, I, I made fun of Ben when we were on a call earlier because <laughs> Settelkasten just means note boxes. And he's telling me, I've got this new system. Like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to revolutionize the way I do things. Like, it's called note boxes. <laughs> Notes in boxes, I'm telling you. They're going to be the new thing. Just got to package it, put a little fruit logo yeah, on I don't, it. I don't it's going to be this, great. I don't think this is a new idea. Notes in boxes. <laughs> I think notes and boxes have been around for a long time. You, you got to get in the weeds. You'll start to see. And notes boxes and boxes are not a productivity system. <laughs> But you got to have the right kind of boxes. That's right. Marie Kondo sells a couple that I'd highly recommend. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. That's not oh product <laughs> um, Anyhow, those are, if you're interested, if you're a productivity nerd, um, I dropped the Medium article and sort of got me started down this little rabbit hole. So check it out if you're interested. There's another, another book on that, which we've talked about on this podcast before called Taking Smart Notes, I think. So that may be... How to Take Smart Notes. Yeah. If you're interested in Zettelkasten, that might be another... Another interesting thing to check out. Dare I ask Chris if you now have any picks for this week? <laughs> yes, I do. As a matter of fact, thank you. Finally. You're welcome. So my, my pick is Amazon Prime wardrobe. If you're stuck at home and you can't go to stores or you just like don't want to go to stores uh, to reduce your exposure to potential coronavirus, you can try out Amazon Private Wardrobe, which allows you to order up to eight things, and then you just pay for what you keep. So if, if you want to search for like clothes or like personally, I have $350 worth of shoes uh, waiting for me outside, and I am so excited to try them on. Uh, we're going to do a little fashion show right after this. It's going to be wonderful. And so the strangest thing happened. There was a flash of light and he turned into a valley girl. In case you guys were wondering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, for, for those who don't have video, I, I'm a, I mean, I'm a ballet boy, actually. Um, <laughs> but Amazon Prime Wardrobe, it's, this is the first time I've used it, but seems pretty cool so far. It's really the most boring kind of shoe, which I, I don't know if anyone can guess what the most boring kind of shoe would be. Birkenstocks. It's, it's a, I, I, $350 <laughs> worth of water shoes. I'm looking for a water shoe. <laughs> Oh, I was going to guess like Converse or something. No, these are just water shoes. That's it. 
So it's really not like fashionable or hip. It's not something I'm super excited about, except for like excited not to hurt my feet anymore on the river rocks. I will say I have like eight pairs of water shoes in Animal Crossing. Right? (laughs) And I never wear them. (laughs) They're just for display. All right, Michael, do you have any picks for us this week? Yeah, so my pick for this week is the Kobo e-reader. I just got it like a week ago and I love to read books, but I was always like snobby about it, I guess, and wanted to buy like the physical copy thinking, oh man, I'm going to take so many notes. And then like years from now, I can come back to those notes and reread them. But it turns out I don't actually go back to those books ever. (laughs) Occasionally I'll, I'll reread something. So it's just taking up a lot of space and is more expensive. So I got this Kobo and it's so nice. Do you have a specific model that you recommend? Because I know they have a lot of different kinds. I chose the like middle range one, which is uh, waterproof so that it can get a little wet. I don't know. Just keep my options open if I'm ever at a beach. So it sounds like you also need water shoes. Yeah, Yeah, I could go read my my books in the river. There you go. (laughs) It is that reading books in a river is actually excellent. And you can put them you can put them in a Ziploc bag if you have like an e-reader. Or if you have a waterproof one, you're fine. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. I guess if you're fancy and you have a waterproof one. Because it's talking about just like physical books. I was like, how do you turn the page? <laughs> uh, I mean, you just, you just get, you just get one with like really big pages so that you can read them for a long time. You laminate the individual pages. I feel like when I was a kid, I spent so much time thinking about how can I read books if I'm in the bath or shower? How can I read books if I'm under the covers and it's dark? For those who can't see, these are actually tears of joy coming out of Tessa right now, having discovered how she can read in the shower. Okay, so finally, my picks for the week. I want to add on to Ben's pick, actually. If you're interested in Zettelkasten and want to play around with tools that leverage that idea, there is an open source note-taking. And again, this is the idea of notes and boxes. Yeah, to be very clear about notes and boxes, if you want to take notes and put them in boxes, uh, there's an open source project that runs in VS Code via a series of plugins called Foam. And it is it uses this idea of having temporary notes and, and permanent notes. And you can also graph and link your notes to each other. So I've only played with it a little bit so far, but it seems potentially very interesting. And then my main picks are both music related. So the first one is this movie that came out on Netflix a couple weeks ago called Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. And I read from the reviews that the movie itself was okay, but the songs were banging. And I feel like that's that's a pretty on-point review. Like, the movie was enjoyable enough, and the songs were really surprisingly catchy. And my final pick is Two Set Violin, which is an Asian-Australian violin classical music comedy channel that YouTube has been recommending me for a while. And uh, I finally watched them because they challenged another YouTube music comedy channel that I follow. And they're really funny. Uh, And they also have an amazing editing team. Yeah. And they also have like lots of quizzes like guess the tempo of this song or guess the pitch of this note. 
maybe I'm the only one that finds that interesting to play along, but I think it's fun. On that note, that's all for this week's episode. Until next time, enjoy the view.